0: Seeing the Christmas decorations around us one more day reminds me that this morning I woke up with a Christmas carol on my mind that we hadn't yet sung this Christmas holiday. And I'm confident the reason we haven't sung it is because only two of you know it. But it goes like this, it goes, you're one of them. Christians awake, salute the happy morn, whereon the Savior of the world was born. Rise to adore the mystery of love, which hosts of angels chanted from above. With them the joyful tidings were begun, of God incarnate and the virgin son. I like it because it feels like it's a snap to attention salute. Wake up guys, you're sleeping on kind of a Christmas carol are you missing what's going on in the manger have you have forgotten what's happened in Bethlehem wake up and salute the morning because great tidings of great joy are for all the people that's what it's about right it's about great joy and I'm wondering I mean, we're just getting past the Christmas season and everywhere I go, it's doom and gloom. And I'm thinking about where is the appropriate level of joy we ought to be experiencing coming out of this magnificent season? Is it lost on us? Where, where is that joy? And I'm thinking perhaps if that joy is present, are we Christians guilty of a bit of malpractice here? I mean, we're supposed to be able to give reason for the hope that lies in us. I think that would be joyful. And and if we're not joyful, is that malpractice? As you know, weddings are a part of my job. I've done lots of weddings and consequently I have lots of stories about weddings. Uh, I was in one wedding once where some of us friends of the groom managed to write on the bottom of the shoes of the groom so that when he knelt down at the altar, this shoe said, H-E, and this shoe said, L-P. <laughs> and we thought that was high humor. And, and you know, the stories, I mean, some stories are not the best. I mean, when my sister-in-law's veil caught on fire during the wedding, that wasn't really a, a fun thing. But you know, somehow looking back at weddings 20 some years later, sometimes it's the stories of the things that happened that you hadn't planned. That really are the most fun things to remember and I'm wondering 20 years or 30 years after this gospel story we have what the stories from this particular wedding were like so this is the gospel of John chapter 2 verse 1 John chapter 2 verse 1 and I would invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel John 2, 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they remained there a few days. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So the mother of Jesus says, They have no wine obviously socially astute, observing what ought to be happening and isn't a little uncomfortable. She says to Jesus, they have no wine. And you wonder, why does Mary get involved here? Is Mary related to the wedding party? Is that why she has been invited? Does she feel some level of responsibility for this social gaffe? Is she hoping to avoid the embarrassment that might arise from a poorly prepared wedding feast? Notice, John uses the word mother in this verse. So when John uses a different word to relate how Jesus addresses Mary, it's intentional. First, Mary is described as the mother of Jesus, but Jesus does not say mother. He says woman. Woman isn't an exact translation. It could be madam or ma'am. But whatever the exact translation is, it is something less different than mother, woman, ma'am. What concern is that to you and to me? And so why use a different term here? It may simply be that Jesus isn't convinced that he should do anything about this situation yet. But if he does, The signs that lead to the glory of God will not be parceled out on the basis of family relationships or expectations or based on special access to Jesus. In other words, Mary, don't presume on my ability because you're my mother. More important matters are at hand right now. In fact, some commentators think that that this particular statement of Jesus is a transition statement. Up till now, Jesus has been Mary's son at home at some level, and now there's a new phase beginning. The ministry has begun. He is different. He is leaving home, and something new is about to happen. Commentators also wonder why Joseph isn't mentioned in this family account. Is it because he has already died? We don't know. Just wondering but if Joseph is dead, it makes it all the more difficult for Jesus to leave home and begin his ministry since he's the oldest son. Fortunately, there are other children at home to bear responsibility for mom. But Mary, Mary knows something about her son, so she very simply instructs the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Always a good advice with Jesus, by the way. Do whatever he tells you to do. Does Mary know that Jesus has divine power? Or has Jesus been a problem solver in their home for years now, and if anybody can figure something else, it will be Jesus who can figure something else? We don't know why Mary says what Mary says, but it is clear that Mary has come to rely on Jesus. But as this story unfolds, you really shouldn't miss the importance of the servants in it. Don't don't miss the fact that John tells us that this story, this event is a sign, okay? It's a sign. So it's okay for us to look for deeper meaning in the event, especially as they unfold because we're told by John, hey, this is a sign that reveals God's glory. There's something important going on here. And standing nearby, are six large stone jars, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. These are jars used to hold water and the water is for hand washing and for the cleaning of utensils, okay? Anything that needs to be purified according to the Jewish regulations. You didn't put your hands into these jars or wash the dishes in these jars. You just took the water for purification to someplace else where you did that sort of thing. These are, these are ritual jars. They are, in modern parlance, jars to keep us kosher, tied to the Jewish religion. Everybody on the scene there knows that. They know what these jars are for. And so Jesus orders the servants to fill them it may simply have been they've been depleted from use because a wedding ceremony back then typically started on a Wednesday and lasted about seven days. It, it took some time. It wasn't, you know, three hours on a Saturday afternoon. It, it was a much longer event. And after the servants fill the jars, he then tells the servants, draw some water out and take it to the chief steward, the master of ceremonies of the feast. And surprise, When the steward tastes the water, it's now wine. The steward doesn't know what has happened. The guests don't know what has happened. On the surface, everything about this event so far still seems usual except for one detail noticed by the steward. Here, several days into the wedding celebration, The bridegroom whose family is footing the bill for all of this has brought out wine that is even better than the wine they served at the beginning of the feast. And that's unusual. That's a surprise. It's the first notice that something isn't normal. Usually it's the best wine served first. And then when people's taste buds are dulled, then we serve the lesser quality stuff. So the result of this sequence of events is the bridegroom is praised rather than criticized for running out of wine. Which is interesting in itself, since he didn't deserve the praise, did nothing to earn it, and doesn't even know how it all happened. I mean, did the bridegroom expect to run out of wine? Had his preparations been lacking? Was he simply poor and couldn't afford anymore and just hoping his relatives wouldn't drink a lot so it would stretch? Fortunately for the bridegroom, he dodged a bullet, though he didn't deserve to, and though he has no idea that it's happened or how it happened. And I wonder, is this sort of a picture of God's grace for us? Not deserved, not understood, but joyfully received. The bridegroom doesn't know what happened, but the servants know, right? They know exactly what happened. And the disciples know, we're told. And I'm wondering, why is the grace of God and the glory of God only being revealed to the servants and the disciples? And I think maybe it's because the servants in this story function like the shepherds in the Christmas story, Jesus reveals his glory to those who are lowly. But to those who are self-sufficient, they have to wait. The lowly folks see the glory of God first. It it may just be that in this story, the servants stand in opposition to Mary. For what God won't do for his mother, he'll do for the servants. I don't know. He, He is focused on the lowly for some reason. But this first miracle is also for the sake of his disciples who believe in him once the miracle is accomplished. I gotta tell you, I am fascinated in this story by the six jars. I mean, they are basic utility purification jars. They provide for what the law provided An understanding of the need for purity, an opportunity for cleansing, an opportunity to know the right way to do things. But now, something new has come. Jesus has arrived. There's something new. And he has come to bring more than just purification. He has come to bring life. And wine... It has to mean joy and celebration and enrichment and all the things we think about when we think about the coming of Christ. New life is available and Jesus is the source of it. And if Jesus can turn water into wine, then anything is possible. The chief steward doesn't know this yet. The bridegroom doesn't know this yet. The guests don't know this yet. But the servants know, and the glory of God through Jesus is starting to leak out through the lowliest of the servants. God is revealing himself in Christ. My fear is that so often the church has been focused on the purification aspect of the gospel that we have missed the wine aspect of the gospel. Certainly, the law was good, and sure, the law helps us to avoid the social and relational train wrecks that arise when we don't pay any attention to the purification requirements. Those things wreck our lives, but we were made for more than just purity. Purity helps keep joy intact. Purity makes relational joy possible and possible to maintain. But we were made for more than purity. We were made for joy. That's what this story is about. We were made for real living. We were made for family and friends and celebrations. We were made for festivals and fun. The creative act of God which resulted in humanity was an expression of the overflowing love and joy of God. And I guess here's the question that I wrestle with as I read this passage. How are we acting to bring the joy that God desires for all of us to our neighborhoods, to our families, and to our community? I mean, are you a joy bringer? Do people anticipate your coming like, oh, I'm so glad to see her. She brightens up every room where she is. Or do people run for the hills when you step into the room? Are you the harbinger of doom and gloom? Or are you the bearer of good news, of great joy, which will be for all the people? I have to say, I said this to Dave earlier in the week, I have been intrigued by one little detail in this story all week as raised by the commentator F.F. Bruce in his commentary in the book of John. This is something I never saw before in this passage, never noticed can't see it in the English very easily. When Jesus tells the servants to draw some water and take it to the chief steward to be tested, he doesn't actually say, draw some water from the stone jars. He just says, now draw some out. They've been drawing out of the well. They've been drawing, drawing, drawing from the well, filling out these huge jugs, drawing, draw, drawing, drawing. Then he says, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. It's just possible, maybe likely, that the water the servants took to the chief steward came directly from the well. Does the water become wine in the process of drawing it? Is all the water in the well now wine? Is this supposed to be a picture of the super abundance of God when it comes to describing the joy of the Lord? Is this supposed to be a picture of the superiority of the new wine of the gospel over the water that's still sitting in those old jars of purification? If the whole well is full of wine now, is there enough wine for the whole village to drink, not just for the people who happen to get invited to the wedding? I don't know. But it's fun to think about. And I'm not completely sure it matters which water became wine. I just know this for sure. Where Jesus is, anything is possible, including richness and great joy and new life. Can you allow yourself to believe that joy is possible for you? Well, Will you trust Jesus to lead you in this pathway of joy? Will you let go of the constraints that keep you joyless? Will you forgive? Will you move on? Will you listen to a new word from the Lord? Will you build new relationships with fellow disciples? Will you listen for the voice of of the joy-giving spirit. Way back in the day, we used to sing a verse of a hymn that went like this. I have found the joy no tongue can tell how its waves of glory roll. It is like a great o'erflowing well. Maybe full of wine, springing up within my soul. It is joy unspeakable and full of glory, full of glory, full of glory. It is joy unspeakable and full of glory. Oh, the half has never yet been told. Friends, we were made for joy. We were made for joy. and this gospel reading, this is the preeminent story that comes from this wedding. Because the gospel's written, who knows, 20, 30 years later. And this is what they remember from this particular wedding the wedding where Jesus turns the water to wine. The servants knew it first, the disciples heard, but now, these years later, everybody knows what happens, right? Everybody knows the story of the richness and the joy and what Jesus did to make the wedding a celebration. And if we're not going to be guilty of malpractice, we will be singing the songs the angels sang, right? Behold, I bring you glad tidings of which shall be for all the people. That was a pretty lackluster great joy. Behold, I bring you glad tidings of great joy. which shall be for all the people. We were made for joy. We are the ones who are to bring joy to the world, right? And if we're not doing that job, is Governor Lamont going to do it for us? I don't think so. Will President Biden do it for us? I don't think so. Will the Congress or the Supreme Court do it for us? I don't think so. Whose job is this? Yours. Mine. Right? Right. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, give us hearts full of joy for the mercy and grace that we've received. Give us hearts full of joy for the new life that is ours by the presence of your spirit in us. Fill us with great joy, I pray, that all of our days might be marked by the joy of the Lord. This we pray, Lord, in your name, amen. And now may the God of peace guard your hearts. And may the joy of the Lord be yours in increasing measure. To the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now and always. Amen.